This is a Founding Media podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Packing Taste. I'm your host, Axel Brave, and today our guest is Clayton Christopher, the co-founder of Kavu Venture Partners and the co-founder of Sweet Leaf Tea and Deep Eddie Vodka. So I know that you guys know what that is. We talked a little bit about his history and why he got into CPG, then dived right into innovation versus differentiation within products as well as the importance of branding. Here's my conversation with Clayton. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me, Axel. Yeah, of course. As a, you know, we might have to do a couple different episodes when you get back from vacation because I loved our conversation about sailing and skiing, but for the purpose of this show, we'll stick to food. Um, but I think I want to start a little bit um, in your younger days, when you were a kid, um, what were you like? Where did you grow up? Did you always have this uh, fascination with food or how did all that begin? I grew up in Beaumont, Texas. So kind of a smallish town in Southeast Texas, uh, a lot of refineries down there. So well, I say great, great place to grow up, but kind of want to get out of there after high school. Um, still have some dear friends there, but yeah, growing up there was just magical. It was, you know, as soon as we get out of school, it was riding bikes all over the town and building forts in the woods and just a, a really charm, just a beautiful childhood. It was a, and, and a lot were you, of fun. Were you like a troublemaker? Did you like building things? Yeah, were you always building was forts? Or? Very, very mischievous. You know, we were sneaking out to wrap houses of friends and girlfriends and you know then it was sneaking cars out when we were 14 15 before we could really drive and wrecking cars and yeah it's i'm thankful to still be alive yeah <laughs> and and what what uh what kind of food were you eating in beaumont because i know i know nowadays there's a lot of uh food coming out of that region kind of but as a kid what did your mother make for you guys what yeah I had a single mom my parents divorced when I was younger so uh, the the sound of the microwave you know ding that was usually the sign that dinner was ready so uh, we did kind of learn to cook a little bit on our own at an early age I can remember my brother getting really upset with me as little kids because I would, whenever she'd go to the store like, she'd usually get lucky charms and I would dump them all out and pick out all the marshmallows. And like, like every kid, right? Yeah, and then my little brother would usually come down a little later than me. He slept a little later, and he'd, he'd dump it out, and there'd be no marshmallows left. He'd start crying. So um, malto meal, I remember learning how to make malto meal, so that was a staple. What's malto meal? Malto is kind of like an oatmeal, but super fine. It's like a grits. It's almost like grits, but I had it like, and I'd really tweak it. I'd put like, start putting like a little bit of vanilla in it, a little bit of cinnamon butter a little you know a little, little milk after it's finished so yeah i kind of honed my malto mill skills and uh, yeah cooked in college some growing up but i, I never really i w- was never really a foodie because i was just so broke you know yeah <laughs> until was a was being a foodie a thing back then no i wouldn't even known what that was until years after college yeah so and your mother would do the cooking, the microwave would do the cooking, which I used to knock the microwave, but now I'm learning that it's kind of a, 
a great instrument to have in the kitchen. <laughs> in a pinch, for sure. She, she did make some incredible gumbo. Yeah. So when she wanted to cook, she could turn it on. And so I at least knew what really good food tasted like. Yeah, and where <clears throat> you were just telling me about uh, your travels in Europe and, and the Middle East, did you get any inspiration for food there? Because that was, you said you attended St. Edward's University for a bit, decided to leave. And then is that when you started traveling around? Yes, after I did, went over to Europe, Middle East, North Africa a couple of times, just living out of a tent. And oh, I'd, I'd lo love to say I, you know, discovered a passion for food there, but I was so broke. I couldn't afford to, you know, eat any, much besides spaghetti and ramen noodles. So it was... <laughs> did you guys have a lot of kebabs there? Because when we go to Europe now, it's... Kebabs? I remember getting some in the Middle East. In okay. Cairo, there was a lot of kebabs. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of street food yeah, down so there. Yeah, so when I did when I did my first Euro trip by myself in, in 2013, 2014, whenever you stay at a hostel, you know, you go out with friends and whatnot, at the end of the night, you have a kebab or a Euro or a slice of pizza for two Euros. So that's kind of... It's kind of the uh, the first foodie experience that goes on with travelers there, but I didn't know if back then you had the kebabs on every corner as well. Yeah, they're they're probably even the street food oftentimes was too expensive. Literally, my my budget was five hundred dollars a month, so you can imagine at five hundred dollars a month, I'm cooking over a fire pretty much every night, sleeping out of a tent every night. It and wh where do you like find spots to? camp out just where uh, it was like we'd look for parks in city like parks in, in the middle of paris or munich um we spent a lot of times kind of like right outside the city we'd find campgrounds and we'd find national parks and uh yeah that was i think i think the most impactful part of of those trips it certainly wasn't any sort of influence like i think on food it was more of just creating a mindset that like anything is possible that like life is a big adventure and anything that you want to, you put your mind to, you can do. And, uh, that just, and I think had I not taken that trip, I probably wouldn't have started my first business, Sweet Leaf Tea. And had I just gone to school, probably would have worked for my father. He had a medical supply company and, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think, I think we have a bit of an age difference here, but I, on that advice, I totally agree with you. I think without that trip, without vagabonding around, you would probably be kind of a different person, right? As yeah. you just said, um, what do you, what do you think? Um, did you see some sort of medium there and while you were traveling that kind of connected people? Um, you said food didn't like hit you right in the face, but the idea that anything was possible and like sharing those moments with people or friends you just met, was there some sort of medium that connected everybody that everyone was young and traveling or everyone was, I don't know. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, a little bit. I think, I think the, the biggest part of it, Axel is probably just this. It really, you know, when you travel, it awakens in us a fascination about other cultures. And I think that there's something that, you know, helps us realize that, the world's much bigger than just us. You know, the, the Western world that we live in with all the media and everything, it kind of 
encourages us to put ourselves at the center of the universe, which is never a healthy thing. It's definitely not a recipe for, for long-term happiness or joy. But I think when we travel in other cultures and you learn about other cultures, it really sparks a curiosity and a fascination about other people, their places, you know, other beliefs. Um, I think it increases tolerance and just curiosity. And so that's what it really did for me is just, it's like, it made me just really curious. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think, I think what you said earlier as well, that you kind of realize that anything is possible. And, um, it's funny you say that because, um, we stayed at this Riyadh in, in Morocco and the one thing the host there would always tell us was all is possible, all is possible. So that became the theme of this whole trip that I, I was on with two of my best friends. And you're, you're totally right. I think moving around and seeing new cultures expands your mind, which makes you feel a little bit smaller. Like you're not in just this Western world that you grew up with, uh, grew up in, but it does what it did to me and what it sounds like it did to you, it like made you hungry for this exploration, for this discovery of new things, um, which I guess is totally necessary to be an aggressive entrepreneur is wanting to like feed that curiosity. Yeah. I think, I think you have to have, um, you have to love adventure, you know, because launching a business is a big adventure yeah. and adventure means the good parts and the bad parts. Exactly. Right? And the adventure usually has some danger. To yeah. It. Well, yes. And that's, <laughs> that's what we get addicted to. Um, okay. So kind of fast forwarding into, um, when you're now becoming a grown up. you know, can't travel your whole life. Maybe now you can, but you wanted to start a business and you wanted to move back to Texas which was kind of an interesting choice, right? After seeing all these wonderful places all over the world, all these open people, you wanted to come back to Texas, which it took me a while to fall in love with, but did you want to come back here because of uh, home or you saw opportunity to start a business here? So it was really, I was living on a sailboat, you know, almost it was, it was very selfish. My, my first reason for starting a business, which was Sweet Leaf Tea, which is my first business. I was, I was living on the sailboat down in the Florida Keys, my girlfriend, uh, it was her parents' sailboat. Uh, her, her family taught me how to sail. And he kept threatening to pull the plug on the charter boat operation that we were running down. What, what boat was this? Sorry. It, was a, it was a 40-foot cat. Okay. Your dad wouldn't allow you on it because it wasn't yeah, monohull. Exactly. But, uh, it was yeah. a beautiful 40-foot <laughs> cat. And I knew that if I ever wanted to own that boat, I was going to have to go get a real job, but I didn't want to go work for somebody and uh, I didn't want to like a typical real job. So I'd heard about a guy in Alabama who had a, a company called Milo's Tea, which was just this, um, you know, at the time I had never heard of it before, but uh, the owner of the sailboat had told me he knew this guy and so this guy had, had crushed it building this iced, iced tea company and was doing really well. And so I asked him if he'd make an introduction. And so on a road trip back to Texas, I sat down with him for about an hour and a half, Ronnie Carlton. Uh, hope Ronnie's still alive. He's an awesome <laughs> dude for spending time with me. And he didn't give me like trade secrets or anything. It was just, I was really impressed with his operation, with the quality of the product. It was the only tea I'd ever tasted that tasted like my grandmother's iced tea, like real homemade 
iced tea. The only packaged tea you've ever tasted. Right, the only packaged tea I'd ever tasted because most all the teas out there at the time, Lipton, ST, Snapple, it was all like high fructose corn syrup. Not tea. Not made from the best stuff on earth. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm like, Snapple, really? Best stuff on earth? High fructose corn syrup, tea solids, caramel color? Yeah. My grandmother didn't use that stuff. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was really the inspiration for Tartan Sweet Leaf was um, to create something that tasted really like homemade. And so, so you're moving from Florida back here, and <clears throat> and I was talking to, to our, our friend Scott about this, but when did the CPG, because you guys were, he, he was doing stubs while you were doing the tea. Was there anything else going on in Texas? That like was in your face. Oh, this is there's a CPG scene here. Not much. There was uh, and and what time was this around? Gosh, this was I started the company I believe in like ninety seven, ninety eight, and then moved it to Austin in two thousand. You started it in in, in Bo- Beaumont. Okay, started it in Beaumont where I was brewing tea and pillowcases, filling bottles with garden hoses. But moved that did did that for three years in Beaumont and then moved it to Austin. Um, and at the time, the only other company I can think of that was here was Michelangelo's frozen. They did, uh, frozen kind of high end lasagnas and okay. eggplant Parmesan. Mike Renna is a dear friend. He yeah. sold that company a couple of years ago, but and he's kind of under the radar screen, but yeah, there, there just was not much at all. There was a Texas coffee company that made some spices and coffee in Southeast Texas. Mm-hmm. So I would ha- you know, hassle those guys to try to. Yeah. yeah, learn whatever I could. So, so there was it was, hard, it was hard to find mentors. Okay, that, that's then. what I was going to ask. There's no one you could bug to be like, "Hey, can you? What, what do I do here?" You know? Yeah, but, I'd, try, uh, I'd try to hang around Scott Jensen, and he was usually too busy for me. Really? But <laughs> and then he was kind enough to to give me some advice here and there along the way. Well, oh, I guess I guess he started. They started Stubbs in the '80s, mm-hmm. so they were they were old, they were more developed, yeah, and older. So yeah, I usually. I'd, Stop by his office every now and then yeah. and ask him for advice. <laughs> Can we share some ribs and talk <laughs> about tea? But the, I mean, totally different market, right? You're talking about high velocity teas at, at a grocery level, at least. Totally different distribution model. Oh, yeah. We were a DSD mm-hmm. primarily through beer distributors all over the country. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to imagine myself in the, in the late 90s looking at Austin's being like, Hey, is there anybody, is there anybody out there? <laughs> no, it definitely yeah. kind of felt like a, we were on an Island. Yeah. So that, and there you, was not much of a community at all when it comes, you know, there was, there was definitely kind of a feeling there was an, there's still an entrepreneurial community, but definitely not a CPG community. Okay. So, so explain, explain to us a little bit how, what exactly you felt when you're like, I'm going to do this I'm going to make this tea company. I have no idea what I'm doing because I've never worked in CPG or the CPG probably didn't even exist at the time. How'd I didn't you, know what how'd, CPG meant at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so like, how did you feel? But you felt comfortable doing this. How was that? Was I think it goes back to just that anything's possible, you know, and an adventurous, curious mindset and attitude. Uh, and I just didn't feel like I had that far to fall. You know, I was single. I was broke. So it's like, not like I had kids that I had to take care of yeah. or, you know, yeah. college. I wouldn't pay off any college debt because I never graduated from college. So it was more of just, you know, it, it felt like the right thing to do. It felt like that 
we needed this type product out there. Milo's tea was only in Alabama. Mm -hmm. They hadn't really moved outside the state of Alabama, so we really didn't have anything like that in Texas. Where we drink a lot of tea. Where we drink a lot of tea. So yeah. I felt like the, the potential was there. And, you know, and sure enough, we got it out in the marketplace and it, it, people bought it. Packaging was horrible. <laughs> you know, I wish I wish you had some here so I could see it. I'll show, I've got an old bottle yeah. on, my, on my shelf in my office. I'll show you after this. And um, so, and I think you've said this once in one of your talks, but how important do you think it, it was for you to just start doing this and start taking action versus sitting around talking about it, researching it, thinking about the label, thinking about the flavors versus just doing the damn thing. Yeah. Had I, had I done a ton, had I like gotten my degree and, you know, written a full on business plan and done a bunch of research and I probably would have never launched it because I'd have realized how hard it would have been. Mm -hmm. um, you know, single <laughs> non-alcoholic single serve beverage is one of the most challenging categories in you know all of all of CPG. Has it always been like that? It's gotten. It's continued to get more and more okay. and more competitive. Back in the day, like when they were building Snapple, distributors used to actually go do sales work for mm -hmm. you. You know, most of these distributors charge twenty uh, high twenties, thirty percent margins, and for that much margin, I mean that's that's your sales force. Yeah. But yet there's so much competition. There begun to be so much competition. They just don't really do sales yeah. anymore. You're lucky if they drop your product off. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, unbelievable. I'm having to pay somebody 30% yeah. just to drop off my product to these stores. And so then you end up having to build your own sales force on top of that. So mm -hmm. it's, I don't want to call it a broken business model, but it's a very expensive business model yeah. you know and it's like that in spirits too yeah largely so it's good that you didn't know that before starting right. This, so, right so yeah back to what i would say i mean i use this a lot with entrepreneurs but you know perfection is the enemy of good you know if, if you're if you're trying to get it perfect you're never going to reach perfection yeah you, know, you got to be committed to it but you got to just launch and then you know fix the plane while yeah. you're flying that's that's beautiful i think to kind of piggyback on that, growing up, one of the sayings in our house was um, los, los perfeccionistas no logran nada, which translates to the perfectionists don't get anything done because <laughs> you just can't complete anything. Because first off, I think perfection doesn't really exist, but working towards something that's impossible, you'll just keep doing that instead mm -hmm. of just doing the thing, right? Wow. Okay. Yeah. More important to get launched, get on the sh get on the shelf, but then it's, you have to continually iterate. You know, I think yeah. even what's in the product, you know, or excuse me, like the product itself, packaging especially, I think is kind of a never-ending pursuit of perfection. Yeah. I mean, we went through six packaging changes in five years at Deep Eddy, mm -hmm. so it was just we we're constantly like tweaking. Yeah. We probably went through. I, I was told that you're a huge packaging label person. You love redoing it, adjusting it, adapting. Yeah. And it's a lot of time, you know, ideally you launch with something that's really good. And then from that, it's an evolution, you know, ideally you don't have to make a revolution or some big pivot on yeah. packaging and communication. I mean, that's, that's going to happen sometimes, but yeah, ideally it's just, you know, and it's because brands are like living, breathing people. I mean, you have to look at them as though they're alive and the most dynamic brands, I mean, they're constantly 
innovating, you know, minor packaging tweaks and consumers can, you know, they can tell when those brands, there's almost like a sixth sense we have and those brands that are most dynamic, they're most authentic, that really speak to the deeper why and have beautiful packaging and product is, you know, the ones that succeed are the ones that are usually continuing to focus on kind of the evolution toward perfection. Yeah. You're never going to get there, but you got to continue to try. Exactly. Yeah. I I like that. The brands that breathe, you got to kind of nurture it, make sure they continue to stay alive. Um, Okay. So kind of to dive right in, I wanted to have a conversation with you about um, innovative products versus differentiated products. And you, they kind of could mean the same thing, but the way I'm going to define it for our purposes today is um, innovative products, which are kind of new to market products. So like um, bone broth a couple of years ago or gluten-free pasta a couple of years ago versus differentiated products, which are products that are already out in the market, but you're going to differentiate yours because of X, Y, and Z. So like flavored vodka or sweet tea, I think, there was flavored vodka before Deep Eddie's or there, there was, but you guys differentiated it by using natural flavors versus artificial right, flavors. Right, and real free juice. Yeah. And then uh, um, the tea, there was already, I guess there wasn't a lot of tea, but there was the tea in Alabama. But most of the teas weren't really teas. It was just fructose and high sugar versus your recipe was your grandmother's recipe. Real tea leaves. Yeah. Real cane sugar organic. Yeah. So... Is there, do you like innovative products more than differentiated products? Do you see one being easier to run than the other? Apples to oranges. I mean, yeah, the, the, the holy grail is I think if you can get something that is like really innovative that um, has not been out there before, um, because then you have a lot less competition. So, you know, when, when I created Sweet Leaf Tea, it was differentiated, but there was lots of other teas on the marketplace. So I, I, I'm a big believer when you're in a very crowded category. Now listen, to even have a reason for being in the launch, you've got to be differentiated. You know, there has to be a reason your product, you know, exists in the consumer's mind. Like, like why should this product have a, you know, deserve to be on the shelf? And so Sweet, Sweet Leaf was, was very different than the products around it on the shelf, but it was small difference. It wasn't like a, a massive difference. And, and in those situations, there's a lot of them out there. I mean, you look at most categories, like, do we really need another tequila? There's tons of tequilas launching right now. Do you really need another straight vodka? That's one of the most <laughs> competitive categories out there. But if you have a point of differentiation there, then I think it's really important to have a strategy that's narrow and deep versus wide and shallow. Um, so it is all about like it, when we started, um, sweet leaf tea, I mean, we, we focused just on Beaumont, Texas and Southeast Texas. And within a couple of years, I mean, we're outselling any other tea in that area. And then within about four years, we were outselling Snapple in Texas and we woke them up so much that they ended up switching from high fructose corn syrup to sugar. Remember, folks around the office started freaking out. And I was like, no, this is a good thing. The big guys are changing. 
and they're changing for good, you know, because we're, we're making them, we're no, taking a bite, you know, out of, out of their hide. So that must've felt amazing. Yeah. I loved yeah. it. Yeah, I, I loved it. It made me, it made me, yeah, it's definitely one of those moments where you like, it felt like we were doing something really good. Yeah. And um, it's good. It's good when a, a bigger company copies you. Like I, I understand, uh, um, the people in your office freaking out. It's like, Oh man, how are we going to do this? But I think feel, I would have felt <laughs> so excited. Like this is awesome. First, it's good that they're switching to natural ingredients. Right. right? But it's like, okay, I'm, I'm teaching some people something, right? <laughs> That's right. We're yeah. doing something right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think, and it was the same thing when we launched uh, Deep Eddy. Our sweet tea vodka was was differentiated from the two competitors on the market, Firefly and Jeremiah Weed. But those guys were using high fructose corn syrup, caramel color, cheap vodka. And we just had a more premium product. We're using honey to sweeten the product with real tea leaves. And But on that one, I said, we're not setting foot outside of Texas until we're number one in this little category. Because if we can't be number one in Texas, our own backyard, we don't have a chance of being number two nationally. And we need to be the number two player in this little category. And so we focused all of our resources on just Texas. There's no way we could spend as much as, you know, Sazerac that had Firefly um, or Diageo that had Jeremiah Weed. But we could spend as much as those guys in Austin, yeah, you know, course. in a really small area. So that's what we did is we, is we, we really hyper focused, hyper focused just on Texas. And within about a year and a half, we became the number one selling sweet tea vodka in Texas. And then we began to move outside the states because had we started to launch in multiple states right out of the gate, we would have spent exponentially less money and had less resources to fight those battles in every state. So, so I don't get excited about new doors and new markets anymore. I get excited about velocity wins. Yeah. I used to get all excited when we'd land some new chain. No more ringing the bell when we land a new no, chain. No, no. We ring the bell when we see the see that we're in the top quartile of velocity within yeah. the category. I, I, I have a I listen to this podcast of this woman um, it's called In the Sauce in New York, but she always says you don't ring the bell when you get in when you get the first order. It's when you get the third, fourth order. That's when you start <laughs> celebrating. Because you're right. I, like, I mean, yeah, you should celebrate your wins, but the velocity nowadays is kind of what helps. So, so before before we go into velocity and whatnot, what was the strategy you guys were using um, as you focused in Texas? And do you still preach that strategy? that strategy today with all the companies you mentor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, um, and I want to make sure we stay on that kind of differentiation versus true innovation yes. because there's a different strategy. Yeah. We'll get for, there. For yeah, real yeah. innovation. So hold me to that. Um, but you know, the things that we would do is, is what we wanted to do everywhere. We just couldn't afford to do it in multiple States, multiple markets. So it was just, we wanted to, there's no, if, if we got into a bar on premise account, I always told the reps it doesn't count unless we're on the menu. Like, don't tell me you landed an account if you just went and sold a few bottles and they're sticking it behind the bar because nobody knows who we are. We've got to be on the menu and we have to have ways to activate that account. Are we doing tastings? Are we doing specials, happy hours? We want, I want to be on the drink menu on, and, you know, bartender education. Yeah. So uh, not, not vodka with Red Bull, deep eddy with Red Bull. Like yeah, that? or or like the sweet tea vodka at the time. Like all you needed to do was mix it with with club soda or sparkling water um, okay. or lemonade. So it, you know we wanted to get it past people's lips. So we were doing a lot of demos in liquor stores, so people could taste it. We were sponsoring events in Texas, 
And then we were um, making sure it was in, we focused a lot on premise, you know, in these, 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 uh, these bars, but we wanted to get on the cocktail menus because that's how people, you know, people go to the cocktail menu a lot of times to look yeah. and see what they, so that was kind of the, the heavy lifting that we did in Texas and, and in other markets, but we just, we had, we had to do it in a small, tight area first, because I knew that if we were more worried about opening up more distributors and more chains, we wouldn't have the, the time, attention, or resources to do all that heavy lifting that was necessary to get the velocities and the, and the product awareness up. But switching to innovation, so what happened is we then ended up developing uh, Ruby Red. And Ruby Red, our, that was kind of our, our racehorse that, I mean, things were going well, but when we came out with Ruby Red, the company really took off. And that was just such a differentiated, it, it, it was such an innovative product because all the flavored vodkas on the market at the time, they were all clear. So they all used artificial flavoring. There was no sweetness to them because they didn't add any sugar. They didn't use real fruit juice. We used real fruit juice and natural flavors. Even natural flavoring has residual color. So you see all these clear vodkas and you're like, what the hell? Like, you know, they're, they're all using artificial flavor. So we used real grapefruit juice because one of our favorite cocktails was just, you know, it's like a uh, Greyhound, you know, vodka, grapefruit juice. And so we, we made kind of a concentrated version of that. And that was our, our Ruby Red that we came out with. And it crushed it. No, there was nothing like it on the market. It just took off. It took off. And we we're having a hell of a time keeping up with production. I mean, we went and moved to two shifts and we even moved to three shifts for a while, which mm -hmm. was insane, insane. But so in that scenario, I think we were in about six, seven states at the time when we came out with Ruby Red. And immediately I said, the strategy's changed. We need to get into all 50 states as quickly as possible because we don't need this narrow and deep versus wide and shallow. We just need, it's, it's like first mover technology advantage. Exactly. Like I knew if we could just get it on the shelf because there was no real competition, like people would buy it. And so sure enough, we started opening up states as, as fast as we could and, and, and hiring up, hiring a lot of salespeople. And I guess just to reiterate, that innovative product, the Ruby Red, when you were like, let's take this to all 50 states, it was no one else had this product. So my, let's fill up every market as much as possible. Because I did it will naturally sell itself. In my mind, there was not really any competition. Yeah. I knew there was going to be copycats. So we needed to be first to market to establish our brand, our product in the minds of these consumers. That's Man, it's funny how the world works. On on the other night, Saturday night, I was out with my roommate and we met we met some ladies and they were all ordering Ruby Red on the rocks. And I was just sitting there. I'm God like, bless him. Yeah, I was like, man, I'm gonna be talking to Clayton on Monday about this. <laughs> this is so funny. But it's still a kick-ass product. Obviously, people are still drinking it. It's but but I I like that we're talking about innovation versus differentiation because as, as mutually exclusive as they are, we do try to bring them together as much as possible. Um, when I was launching my brand, my it started with the chimichurri sauce. It's, you know, like I told you, it's the ch it was my chore growing up. It's what I always made. And I realized, well, there's like two or three competitors. It's all in like pourable marinade jars. It'd be interesting to put it in a pouch. And I was like, is that differentiated? Is that innovative? what would work, but I ended up putting it in a jar. So now I have this product that's entered the market 
with kind of dead competition. It's like, I think some big name brand like makes some chimichurri sauce, some gaucho ranch that's like $4.99. They don't use, they put weird stuff in it that I don't know how to pronounce, stuff I've never grilled with. So I'd like to consider it kind of a new product, but I guess technically it's just differentiated. But I'm trying, as, as I grow my brand, I'm trying to learn how to position it. Should I put it in a pouch? Should I um, pair it with, with the meat department at the grocery level? And I wanted to get your take on it. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about that? Like, it, would you consider this an innovative product, even though there's two dead competitors there? Or is it a dif- differentiated product because it comes from an authentic story of growing up and how I learned, learned kind of like um, your tea. Your grandmother taught you the recipe and that was that story is what sold. Yeah, I, th- I think the challenge for you will be to, to make it differentiated, you know, because the, it's hard to say it's innovative because it's been around for a long time. You've got you've got competitors there. A lot of people make it at home. Um, but I think the, a lot of times the way you merchandise it too, you'd mentioned like in the meat department, you know, a lot of times the way you merchandise can differentiate yourselves from the competition. Uh, those in, putting in places where there's an impulse buy mm-hmm. opportunity, such as the meat department, yeah. it's kind of like Beyond Meat. One of their strategies that's been really successful for them is they didn't want to be sold in the vegan frozen section they wanted to be sold in the meat section, like in the, with the butcher, you know, in the, in the yeah. meat department, because they wanted to go after consumers that weren't necessarily just vegans. They wanted to go after meat eaters that were just looking to help the planet and help their, help their, help their body, help their diet, you know, yeah. taking a little less red meat by maybe substituting red meat once a week for Beyond Meat. And so by going into the, the meat department, they saw a significant lift in sales. Yeah, that's very ballsy stuff that's like uh david and goliath going against the big guys and that's i and i i heard um you know matt gase he he gave a talk on that like positioning yourself against the big guys but not stepping on their toes you know? <laughs> right you don't you don't want to wake the sleeping giant exactly exactly um that's interesting because I, I i I wouldn't think I wouldn't consider my products innovative because, like you said, chimichurri has been around for hundreds of years. It's not new, but but, how you, can, but you can differentiate them. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I like not using um, scientific, unpronounceable like chemicals in my product, which is a huge advantage for me and being all natural and being keto. And um, I think the glass package is the right package, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's a gourmet product. It's a premium. And oh, I've gla- had glass says premium. Yeah, I've had countless people say switch it to pl- plastic so it's cheaper to ship. So now I'm in this like, man, I'm boosting my my online sales through ads, but it's expensive to ship. Do I compromise the premium value of a, of this jar just so I can save? It's just so the consumer can save seventy five cents on shipping. I'm like, I don't think so. I'd, I'd rather charge more. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, exactly. I, I love being the highest priced <laughs> product <laughs> really? in, in the in the category. Why is that? Uh, I mean, margins are usually better. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can command a premium price, we're never. None of us are ever going to be the low cost providers. 
that's what the big guys do because they have massive volume. So we have to be the high quality providers. You know, that's where we can differentiate ourselves in crowded categories is by providing a better tasting, better for you, much higher quality product. The big guys can't help themselves. They can't help but like go back towards high fructose corn syrup. They can't help but go to like gums and thickeners and, you know, products that'll, that'll help. So, you know, they, they do everything in a chemistry lab. (laughs) That's how they create it. And they do everything with an intense lens of, of margins and cost and driving cost out of the system. And so we're never going to beat them at that game. So we got to beat them at the game that we're best at, which is creating products that taste badass, taste much better than theirs and are better for you. Yeah. It might be a little bit more expensive. And it should, but yeah. And it should, you know, it should be able to command a premium price yeah, and the consum- the consumers from, has to ca- have to care as much as we do. Yeah. And, and I think that that sounds right when like our products are coming from the kitchen, your products coming from the laboratory, like, but, but like you said, that, that's the name of their game, cutting costs, cut seeing where they can take away so they can increase that velocity. Um, which brings me to my next question is, the juggle of velocity, margin, and door count. And you kind of touched on all those, but is it a different formula for different brands? Is it a different formula for innovative versus differentiated brands? Yeah, I think, I think it, it, the strategy does change some depending on how innovative your brand is. Um, that being said, margins are critical. I've I've burned my hand a couple of times in in business situations, not paying enough attention to margin. You know, there's always the age old adage that like margin will always come as volume increases, you know, as you get to real volume. So, you know, don't worry about margins too much in the early days. That's what I believe. So (laughs) I'm listening. (laughs) It's true. It's true to a certain degree, but sometimes you're never going to get the volume unless you have margins because margins are what give you money to spend on marketing your product, um, and investing in sales infrastructure. So I'm a, you at least need to have clear line of sight to really strong margins. If you don't have clear line of sight to good margins, strong margins, it's a broken business model. I mean, you gotta have really clear line of sight, not like, okay, if we're, if we're doing 10 times the amount of sales that we're doing now, we just, in our gut, know that margins are going to be better. I mean, you've got to really have line of sight. And ideally, you're launching with margins that are already strong. They're just going to get stronger with volume. I would never launch a product with, with crappy margins right out of the gate. You know, so outside of that, talk about margins, nothing's more important than velocity. I mean, I'll take strong velocity over door count any day because if you have really strong velocity if you're winning in the doors that you're in even if you're not in many doors my my belief is you can get into any door you want to like if if i have a strong selling story even if i'm only in a few hundred stores i can create a story for that buyer of that much larger chain because my sales presentations my my favorite way to present these things is always like because these buyers are risk averse if, if you if you loved risk and adventure, you're not going to go be a buyer at Walmart, you know, or <laughs> yeah. a, a hold or, or target. Mm-hmm. So you have to take the risk away from them. What I like to do is to show them like the biggest risk is not saying yes to my brand. Look how strong the sales story is. 
and you're going to miss this opportunity if you don't jump on the train. And that just helps you get the yes that you want to get because so many entrepreneurs, like a lot of entrepreneurs go out of business because they yes themselves to death. They're unable to say no because they're so desperate for revenue and sales and growth. So you, you, but you have to know when to say no and you have to know when to say yes. And you have to say a lot of no's to honor your yeses, um, which means velocity, velocity, velocity. Cause then you have that sales story and you can go to the retailer that you want to be in. You can say here's why you should bring my product on. And you're crazy if you don't, because we're crushing it. But also here's what I need from you. So if they say, I'm going to take two SKUs, put you on the bottom shelf and I'm going to put you in the crappy zip codes, you can say, no, you're not ready for me. You know, you got to be able to walk away from the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, I think the fact of having a good velocity versus a good door count is the velocity means more to the consumer or, or the, the velocity should mean more to us because if there's high velocity, people know who you are and they're continually buying your product for a certain reason versus like I mentioned this, one of our competitors in the chimichurri, they're in a lot of stores, they're in Kroger's and whatnot. No one's ever heard of them though. No one's right. heard about them. Versus now I have a little cult following here in Texas where people are like, oh, I've seen your stuff at this event, or I've seen you hand this out here, or I've seen you at a, a central market. High velocity means defensible revenue. I say not all revenue is created the same. I would much rather, and when we look at investing in companies now and working with them, I would much rather see a company doing five million in sales out of one market or one state than 10 million in sales across 50 states. Because when you have a high concentration of revenue in a smaller area or with one chain, and you're in that top 10% of velocities in your category, that rev you, you have high consumer awareness, you have higher household penetration, and you're just, it's gonna be really tough to knock you off your little throne. Yeah, it's a lot more so it's high, that re So that revenue is much higher quality. Yeah. And that's what's gonna get you the yeses you know, and down the road doors, from other, yeah. other, get you all the doors. So before we go into brand strategy, can you quickly talk about like very quickly about, um, knowing when to launch a new product within your brand? Uh, innovation, where could we go? Mm -hmm. Where should we go? And how do we make those decisions? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think innovation, you know, I think a lot of brands innovate too quickly. Um, I think the, the things that you have to really ask yourself is if you have a product that's working, but you're only in, you know, a thousand or so doors, you know, why would you, why would you innovate? The, you know, it, it goes back to the, the, the sales tree, you know, the, the easiest way to get new sales is selling more of your existing products to existing stores. The next step up the sales tree the easiest revenue after that is selling more of your existing products into new stores into, in, into new stores. And the next one is new products into existing stores. So until you've really gone deep in the marketplace with your existing product line, you know, I wouldn't innovate. Um, I mean, it's one thing to say, let's add an additional flavor. You know, that's not real innovation. That's just kind of keeping that brand health alive and excitement around it. Uh, where I would encourage innovation early on, and I've been victim to this, is if, if you have to pivot, if you really need to make the brands not working. If the velocities aren't, if the velocities aren't working and you're not in that top half, the top quartile 
of velocities within your category, something's wrong. Is it a packaging problem? Is it a distribution problem? Is it a merchandising problem? Or is it a product problem? So I've seen situations where we've had dramatically changed the product and the packaging yeah. um, so, early on. So like um, the whole the whole myth or the whole idea behind, oh, I'm in 500 stores with three SKUs. Well, I have those 500 stores. Let me make four new SKUs so I can put them in that in those stores. That's kind of a silly idea, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's like you know, adding one to two new flavors a year because you gotta you gotta be willing to cut the cut the ones that are aren't performing as well. So I mean, sometimes it's like you hear the it's like add two new flavors a year and kill one flavor a year, so you can trade them out to hold that shelf yeah. space because you don't want the retailer telling you I'm cutting the skew. You want to go to them proactively and say, hey, I want you to bring in these two new flavors, but we want to discontinue this flavor. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you're you're doing that active management. You know on, on your own um the other thing if you are going to innovate or when you do innovate because the most valuable brands tend to be platform brands they tend to be brands that can go into multiple categories but when you think about where you could go then you have to think about where you know where you should go and it's really adjacent categories um burt's bees for instance you know when they 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 were doing a lot of lotions and shampoos all natural well the 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 last ceo they had he really wanted to get into cosmetics but that was a pretty big jump to go from like shampoo and and lotion all the way to like eyeshadows and so you know and he didn't feel like they had permission within their consumer base to make that big of a jump jump yet but that's where he wanted to go and so the first thing they did is said let's get into chapstick I said, you know, that's, you know, chapstick. It's like lotion for your lips. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, let's get into colored chapstick. It's like, I get it. Just, just another, <laughs> an, another step, you know, yeah, chapstick, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's lipstick. And then all of a sudden they had permission to start going, you know, that was knocking on the door of, of cosmetics. And so then they went into like blushes and eyeshadows and they're doing great mm-hmm. in cosmetics now. But had they gone there right out of the, that, that was a two and a half year process, but had they gone there right out of the gate, he didn't think they would have made it. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so adjacent categories, kind of, kind of baby steps. Where do you feel like you have permission to go amongst your consumer, your consumer base? Yeah. So don't go from sauces to cereal. Right. Yeah, probably not a good probably idea. Probably not a good yeah, idea. Chimichurri to like, you know, compete with Captain Crunch. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if your consumers will support you there. Yeah. Um, okay. So let, let's talk about strategy or really messaging. How important is the messaging between uh, the brand, the product, the consumer, and how much do you love packaging and a clear message? Yeah, it's it's critical. I mean, uh, it's funny. We did this. My, my, my wife, she she was in the CPG world as well, so she, we love. She does this stuff with our kids. We'll she'll go take them to the grocery store, and our four and a half year old, she'll she'll put two packages next to him and say, you know, James, which one which one do you want? Which one do you like better? Oh, he always God. goes for the one that has like the more attractive, brighter packaging. You know, it's like it, it works on adults too, yeah. not, not just kids. Um, you know, you've got two seconds to make a first impression with your packaging. So it's, it's got to pop. You know, it's got to stand out. You know, I see a lot of people make design mistakes by creating it in a vacuum. You know, you can make packaging that looks great when it's sitting there all by itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on your computer yeah. screen or like on the shelf, you know, in your, in your office, your cube. But, um, when you put it 
next to all the competition, it can get lost really quickly. You know, so when you're designing, you, you got to put it on in a competitive shelf set, you know, and go stick it in, the, you know, wrap the label around it, stick it in the shelf next to all the competition. And does it really jump out? You know, and then I think it's like there's brand attributes and then there's product attributes. And it's like, well, what's going to resonate more with the consumer? Um, and so a lot of times doing some basic consumer research can be highly effective in knowing because you may have all these different product attributes, but what's going to, you know, what's going to resonate most with this, with the consumer, because what may be most important to you may not be most important to your consumer. So knowing what it is that's going to attract them to your product can really help you prioritize when you've got limited real estate yeah, to so- communicate. So have, have some kids so they can do the research for you. <laughs> <laughs> There's much cheaper ways yeah. <laughs> to do consumer research than having kids, I can assure you. I imagine. I imagine. But that's very interesting. You say you have two seconds to catch someone's attention. I'm, I'm talking to a branding agency right now, and they're like, or, or this Facebook marketing woman called me, not the branding agency. This Facebook marketing lady called me. She's like, you have 10 to 15 seconds to get someone's attention on Facebook with an ad. And hearing you say you have two seconds for someone to catch, put their eye on your label on the shelf, that makes a lot of sense to me. Literally, there's hundreds of items on the shelf. And when when someone might turn their head to the left and catch a glimpse of your label of it's shiny. Yeah, we, we don't want to think too hard. I mean, deep, deep down inside, we were programmed as like humans, as animals to conserve, conserve, uh, you know, to conserve calories, you know, to not expend calories and like having to think too hard about a marketing message or packaging. It's, you just, uh, we naturally want to move away, you know, and, and go on to the next package. So you want it to be super clear, um, very simple, you know, the most beautiful package out there oftentimes is like very simple messaging. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how important are like certificates and, and claims on, the packaging, not as important as the overall packaging. I mean, I think, I think in terms of like kind of secondary communication, those can be important, you know, is it organic? You know, there's so that, that is the secondary stuff. Yeah. When I'm holding the Waterloo can, the first thing that catches me is the orange and the, the highlight outside of the, the text. And then I, I noticed the zero calories, zero sugar, zero sodium. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sex cells. So it's like people want to be associated with brands that have personality and they want to identify with that are aspirational. You know, it's kind of like with single serve beverages, why you don't see many people walking around with private label, single serve beverage, Sam's club, Kirkland, you know, it's just because they, that they don't want that to be, they, they want it to be an, a reflection mm-hmm. of themselves. So they would rather spend the extra money and Evian, Fiji, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, it's the same stuff. Yeah. It's inside the Kirkland bottle, mm-hmm. um, but it's just a much sexier package. And so we're drawn to that. It's almost like a, a beautiful woman. You know, initially she really catches your eye. You're looking at the Waterloo can here and you're like, oh, like this gorgeous piece of fruit here and the beautiful font and the colors that pop, you know, but then you go on a couple of dates and it's like values become really important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just you know, a <laughs> pretty face is, is nice for a, a, a date. But after that, it's like you better have strong values. And it's like, OK, what are these product attributes here? How does it taste? It's like, OK, this really tastes amazing. This is non-GMO. You know, this is, um, 
it's 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 zero calories zero sodium it's actually good for me and it's good for the environment so yeah i think that that becomes super critical but the first thing that grabs you is 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 the personality that the brand is the is the visuals yeah i think as as animals when you said sex sells i think that's pretty pretty on point um okay so kind of kind of having to wrap up here but i wanted to ask you um how necessary how necessary is it nowadays to raise capital to grow your CPG company? Yeah, it's gotten a lot more expensive, you know, over the past decade, you know, as, as, as big exits have happened over the years, these splashy headlines, you know, at these really high valuations that a lot of these CPG brands have sold for, more capital has come into the marketplace. And all that does is drive up <laughs> the expenses for brands. It just makes it more expensive to compete. Um, so I would say if when you're rolling your brand out um, kind of through retail, it's almost impossible not to raise capital at, at some point unless you just have something really innovative, incredible margins. Um, so, yeah, it's it's becoming, I'd say, more and more important and more capital intensive. Uh, the beauty of the Internet and e-commerce is it, it, it gives you a margin advantage that you're able to bypass the retailer. You're able to have a direct, listen, I love a lot of retailers out there, but they are just a necessary evil mm-hmm. <laughs> between the brand getting to the consumer. At the end of the day, as a brand owner, all you want to do is have a relationship with that consumer and sell your product to them. The retailer is basically just this chessboard that's in between you and the consumer that you've got to deal with. Um, so by being able to sell directly um, to these consumers, D to C, which has become obviously very popular. Food and beverage has lagged in, in, in e-com historically, but it's catching up quickly. I mean, it's growing, it's on fire right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm seeing more and more brands get profitable at a very early stage that would have been pretty much impossible to do had they only had a, a retail kind of wholesale strategy. But now being able to sell directly to the consumer, you're able to capture that extra 30-ish, 40-ish percent margin yeah. that the retailers would typically take. And that's huge. Yeah. You know, that can that can be the difference between profitability and, you know, cash burn. So a lot of a lot of the CPG companies, you men are here, um, you're on the board with SKU, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you guys preach to them all the time, be on Amazon. Like that's the number one. And I've, I've talked to some of the companies that have and been even, and even, but be, even better than Amazon is if you can sell website. directly to them mm-hmm. off your website, kettle and fire had, this was a bone broth company that we invested in not too long ago. The mayor's brothers, Justin, Nick, awesome folk, mm-hmm. two young guys, super dynamic, super sharp, incredible product. Um, they were doing a little over 10 million in revenue. They'd never sold to a retailer and they were never sold on Amazon and they were very, very profitable, you know, and they yeah. own hundred percent of the company. That's and it's amazing. all because of the, uh, you know, developing a strong D to C strategy. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, more, more and more we look for that, um, at yeah. Cavu, um, for investing. That's kind of like, you got to find out how to, build that advertisement online to find. And then you already have like that built in consumer base when you do go to retail that causes you to have to spend less on demos Mm -hmm. and promotions. Yeah. Because you already have a built in consumer base. 
Jeez. Um, so, so what are what are some of the key items that investors like you look in look at, at uh, or look for really in, in these new companies that are popping up? Is there yeah, I mean, I think things? so much around the company. It's it's oftentimes the people mm-hmm. behind the company is just as important, if not more important, than the actual product that they're selling. You know, I look for entrepreneurs that are highly curious, force of nature. Um, you know, I like to say high IQ is a, a nice to have, but not a need to have. Yeah. If it were a, a, a need to have, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> I just had to outwork it because <laughs> I was never, I was never that smart. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think if you have someone that is a force of nature and extremely passionate, these entrepreneurs will figure out a way to get to the top of the mountain. And it's not always the most likely trail that they start on. Um, I think... Ideally, it is a product that is going to make the world a better place and, and is better for you. And that, that's a trend that is here to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, sugar is public enemy number one. Um, people are looking for better for you products that ideally have a, a positive impact on the environment as well. So, yeah, great products that taste delicious. Consumers don't want to compromise. You know, no, they, they, they want it to be better for you, but they want it to taste great, too. Mm-hmm. So it has to taste great. Uh, if it's not gorgeous packaging, that can all be fixed. Um, but you can't fix the team. You yeah. Know? And it, now we can add to the team and, and strengthen it. But, you know, if it's, and I would say integrity is just hugely important. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to know bad news before, before good news. And, uh, yeah, just finding someone that's passionate and knows that they found their life calling. Yeah. When you meet those people, then you know that they found their life calling. Their odds of success are significantly higher than those who are just doing it to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. W- would you, would you ever tell an entrepreneur, like you really love this person. They have a lot of talent. The, the curiosity's there. Would you be like, Hey, you should drop this product or add this product to your line. Or is that something you don't, you don't step on someone's toes? Like, that? I don't know. I tell them, I tell them how I feel all the time. Okay. I mean, I let them, you know, I don't own a crystal ball. That I keep underneath my desk. Are you I mean, sure? Yeah, <laughs> I may have a, a good intuition on things, but yeah, I, I always give entrepreneurs, whether I'm an investor in that company or whether they're just coming to me for advice. I mean, you know, if they're sharp, they don't want me just to tell them their baby's pretty. Mm-hmm. They they want to know <laughs> what needs to be exactly. fixed and how they can get better. So I try to be brutally honest with them. That's good. Well, I think we're all out of time. Unfortunately, I think we can both keep this conversation going. But I, are there any last pieces of advice or remarks you'd like to make? Any any new things on your horizon you'd like to share? Yeah, I know. If anything, I would encourage uh, entrepreneurs out there to you know f- figure out your 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 deeper why. You know, because we all know what the what is, the product is, but like, what's your deeper why? And your values, I think kind of your values, your own for your brand, for your company, for yourself, those should all be pretty aligned and and your deeper purpose. You know, why were you put on this earth? You know, because when you figure that out, it's a lot easier to say no to all the bright and shiny objects and distractions. And it's also very inspiring to people around you. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't focus on that stuff soon enough. Second half of life sort of stuff, you know, significance versus success. Yeah, I again, I agree with you. I think um, if people had the chance to take a trip vagabond through Europe, they'll be able to realize some of this stuff. But 
Anyways, I'd like to thank you again for coming on the show with us on Packing Taste. I had a wonderful conversation and um, I wish you all the luck in the future and I hope you have a wonderful time in Jackson Hole. Can't wait to, to have the chimichurri tonight for dinner on, on, a, on some steaks. Yeah, it's going to be on meat. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> thank you. Wow. Thanks again for stopping by, Clayton. I think we had a wonderful conversation and thank you for taking the time sharing all your insight on different products, different branding. And I think a lot of us are going to take a lot of new information away from this conversation. The Packing Taste team includes me, Axel Brave, producer, Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer, Jake Wallace. Thank you everyone at Founding Media for your support. Make sure you guys have subscribed to the show so you never miss an episode. Also, if you're really enjoying it, you should totally leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other folks find the show. For behind the scenes and more photos, you guys can follow us at Packing Taste Podcast. Thanks for listening.